Welcome to the Strength Talking Shop Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Smith. On the Strength Talking Shop Podcast, we talk all things fitness, strength, coaching, powerlifting, strongman. If it involves a barbell, we're going to talk about it. We are presented by Optimum Nutrition Athletics. We all know that protein is the key to muscle and recovery. And Gold Standard's 100% best-selling whey protein provides 24 grams of protein that mixes easily using just a glass and spoon. Gold Standard 100% whey is made in their state-of-the-art facility. It's banned substance tested by Informed Choice, and with Optum Nutrition Athletics Program, you can get different items such as their Pro Gainer, which is their Mass Gainer, protein snacks such as their Crisp Bars, Wafers, Cake Bites, and Almonds, and after dominating the sports nutrition industry for over 30 years, newly created Optum Nutrition Athletics brings that same trust and quality that knows how to put convenient options for protein in the hands of athletes who desire to become bigger, stronger, and better at their sport. If this is something that you're interested in getting into your facility and helping your athletes out, reach out to Dave Harvey of Optimum Nutrition Athletics. His information is down in the show notes where you can easily email him and he can get you everything that you need. Awesome, awesome products, guys. The Gold Standard 100% Way used every single day by me and by so many millions of people. And then also the protein snacks, easy, on the go, wonderful snacks. Go reach out to Dave Harvey. Thank you so much for Optimum Nutrition Athletics for being our sponsor. This week's guest is Kevin Poppy. Very excited. We talk all things baseball. We talk about mindset, uh, the different athletes that he deals with on a day-to-day basis. It's an awesome episode. Can't thank Kevin enough for being the guest this week on the podcast. Make sure you guys give it that five stars on Apple Podcast Review. Share it on Instagram through Spotify, Google Play, however you listen to it. But if you can subscribe, that would be absolutely awesome. And leave it that review. Thank you to all of our past guests. Thank you to all of our future guests. And thank you to everybody that helps support this podcast. Thank you to our sponsor, Optimum Nutrition Athletics. And enjoy this week's episode with Kevin Poppy. And everybody, stay strong. What's up, Strength Talking Shop Podcast? Excited to have the, the powerful Kevin Poppy on here. What's going on, Kevin? Uh, what's going on, man? Uh, all good down here in Houston. Just uh, looking forward to a good conversation. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, very excited. Like I said, we uh, had gone back and forth a few times. Somebody I was really looking forward to have on. Somebody I followed for a really long time. Got a beautiful facility back there. I know you're a great coach, man. But how'd you get started in this madness? Um, you know, just uh, about 10 years ago now, um, I was um, finishing up my mediocre college baseball career and um, I was working with a local strength condition guy here named uh, Lee Fioki, who now is my business partner, and he's now also the head strength coach with the Los Angeles Angels. And so um, he offered me an internship, and I, I took it. And um, I mean, that it kind of the rest is history, as it as it would be said. Uh, Lee just mentored me and um, slowly built up a client base. You know, I think a lot of people think it's going to happen a lot quicker than it does, but it took a long time and, you know, I was blessed to have people in my corner fighting for me and teaching me. And then also people that were, that were willing to trust me. And, and that's how it grew from there. It's interesting, man. I love that, that you talked about, you know, earning the trust of others and kind of building it over time. It's funny. You think things are going to kind of come overnight, right? Like a lot of people think in this world, but it took you a long time, didn't it? To kind of get where you guys are at right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I try to tell people success, it's sort of like this really long hallway with a bunch of doors and you see the light coming from the end of the tunnel 
in the first board, it looks like the light's right there. So you're like, oh, man, this is going to be no time. I'm going to kill it. And so you get to that door and you're like, well, there's only one more door. And then you open that door and then there's one more door. And it's, but there's probably like a hundred doors and it looks like it's just beyond the next door. Um, so it, it definitely takes a lot. What you think you're going to be able to accomplish in a year probably takes um, five, six, seven years. But what I'll tell people um, and what a lot of people say now that I think is right on, if you, if you think about what you can get done in a year, it, you're going to feel kind of depressed about it. But if you look back after 10 years and you see how much um, has been accomplished and how much has changed and you start to really um, appreciate how much um, has been accomplished by you and by people around you that have helped you along the way. How important is it for you to have a good team around you to be able to make those connections and to grow forward? Uh, that, that is everything in what we do. And that's, that's why we've structured our, biz our business in a certain way. Um, I'll tell a lot of guys um, often that I'm probably not the best coach that we have. Um, I probably don't know the most about speed. I probably don't know the most about strength. And we have different people around or nutrition. And uh, we have people around on our staff that carry loads of expertise that really help strengthen everybody around them. So we're, what I might not know on the nutrition side, we have uh, Chelsea at our West location that can really bridge that gap on the speed side, what I might not know. Uh, we've got um, Kyle Kleeman, who heads up our NFL combine training. Um, and and it, it's just really that. And so instead of it just being one person that everyone's working for, it, it truly is a, a team that, that is needed to conquer all aspects and really um, give our athletes the, the service that they, they want and, um, and that's the only way you can actually give it to them outside of just being a human encyclopedia, which I don't think anybody truly is. No, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing, like how important it is to have that team around you to bounce the ideas off of like how many times are you probably sitting there on a whiteboard or you're just sitting there writing notes and you're like, Hey, like, do you think this would work out? If, and like you guys can all collaborate and then you can send the athlete to this location or that location. They're going to find the right answers. If you kind of found that to be just really successful in the, in the growth of the facility. And then also too, just like you said, the service to the athletes, as far as getting them pointed in the right direction of where they want to be at. Yeah. I mean, like you, like you just said, that's, and like, well, what I was talking about before, it's really everything. Cause you know, oftentimes you get too close to the project where you start thinking on, in this rabbit hole, and you start thinking that you're on this brilliant uh, mind flow and then you bounce an idea off of someone they're like, oh, but that wouldn't work because of this. You're like, oh yeah, I was dumb. Like it was a dumb <laughs> idea from the get-go. So it stops bad ideas dead in their tracks. But um, it also, you know, when you're just one person, you can only think on one wavelength for so long. And it, it's just so beneficial to get input from other people especially when everyone's willing to humble themselves and know that they don't have the, no one has all the answers and we're just looking to collaborate and build this, <clears throat> this picture of, of a direction that we're moving toward. And, you know, everyone's got their own biases and it's about using each person so that you're not just um, subject to your own and, and uh, yeah. really taking that input. And I think in our industry, a lot of times you end up with one person um, whether, whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter who it is, but you end up with one person running a facility and a bunch of people working under them. And inevitably, 
uh, when it's just building this one person up, these people that are underneath supporting, there's a high turnover in our industry. They end up, hey, I'm going to branch off, start my own place. And that, and you know, it does a disservice to both, both groups because that person branches off, they have to start over. Um, but then they also probably take a fair number of clients with them. And so that place that had the head guy, now he has to kind of start over and it's just kind of this revolving door. And that's really something that we've uh, tried to change in our industry, especially with our staff here at DST. Yeah. I like that. The longevity side of it. I mean, I mean, I'm out of the industry and it, it's something that there is super high turnover. And I think if you can get a good collaborative groups, like I, I worked under a great guy, Joe Quinlan, he was very awesome in the fact of if you wanted to run triphasic, you wanted to try this, you want to try that, he would let you try it and he'd let you screw up and he'd let you learn from it. But then he would give his own put, input and everything like that. You would work as a team. Um, I think that's really important to be able to, you know, like you said, you're giving a service to the athletes at the end of the day. So what kind of athletes are you guys working there at DST? I've seen quite a bit of clients online, obviously, and you're always putting up awesome, awesome videos of them and everything. So who are you guys yeah. working with? Uh, we, I mean, we work with youth athletes all the way up to the professional level. Um, yeah. So we have our after school groups that are youth athletes that's late elementary school, middle school, and our high school athletes in the after school group. Um, and that, that all starts in the afternoon for us around 3 to 7 p.m. And we have some morning groups. But then during the day, it's primarily our, our professional athletes. Uh, and then in seasons where we don't have the professional athletes in, that's more of a time for us to do professional development or, or do work on stuff around the facility, kind of take inventory. But um, I mean, yeah, I mean, we work with everything. And then in you know summer and then winter breaks, that's when our, our collegiate athletes are in. And it's just, it's really cool to see the lifespan, but we really truly do work with the entire gamut of athletes here. What are some of the low hanging fruit that you think that the athletes are kind of leaving on the table that you're, uh, that you're seeing? Oh, she's, um, <laughs> that's a, that's a big question because especially yeah. broadly amongst all of them. Right. I think, you know, I'll take it category by category. I think youth athletes leave, leave all sorts of stuff on the table. I think too many places um, focus on just the foundations of movement, which I think is incredibly important and absolutely needs to be an emphasis in every youth athlete's training. However, they're also going through sensitive periods of development that can be addressed, um, whether that be from balance, coordination, reaction, uh, reaction time from a auditory cue, from a visual stimulus, um, awareness of your body in space there's different time periods that they're going through that i think aren't as appreciated as they should be in our industry um yeah. in high school i just think it's you know I, I think typically people have a good idea of what high school athletes need but i would say what the, what they tend to leave on the table is on the nutrition side just just not eating enough and not getting and then the ones that do eat enough aren't eating enough uh protein and then you know, I think just patience is probably the lowest hanging fruit. They always want to jump on the next way to ball program or jump on something that's going to give them the cut half a second off their 60 in six weeks. And um, I just think that patience is probably the most lacking thing for a high school athlete. And then collegiate athletes is just always going to be consistency and, you know, what they're doing on the weekends um, and what they're spending their free time on and, uh, pro athletes, I, I typically think that um, nutrition 
uh, tends to be uh, a common thread there as well. Yeah. Okay. All big things, you know, nutrition, you said, obviously for a lot of those groups, it's probably going to be a big thing, but what I'm interested in is the patient side of things, you know, cause you've got parents that they're spending a lot of money on travel ball, working out mm-hmm. uh, equipment. So they're spending a lot of money, right? How do you kind of bridge that gap with the patient side on your end? I mean, that to me is probably <clears throat> got to be one of the most difficult conversations to have. Yeah. And that's where developing a relationship becomes so important, right? So yep. it's, it's, such an obvious conversation that I feel like parents and athletes sometimes just they're so close to the project that they don't see the long term where especially with this we'll have like a freshman athlete come in that's very talented and parent will ask like hey uh he's supposed to be going to this tournament what do you think about going to this showcase and blah 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 and I'm like the reality is he's not getting drafted tomorrow or next year or the next year so we've got plenty of time. So, I mean, I think there can be a benefit for showcasing a kid early. I think there can be a benefit for not going. But I think it's just having that conversation of, listen, like, we have a plan. Here's where we are. Here's where we want to be, okay? Nothing really matters that much in here as long as we're taking steps toward this end goal. And so if we – are trying to build some lean mass, let's say, physically. Let's talk physical goals first. We're trying to build some lean mass. Understand that our speed might tick down for a little bit while we're uh, putting a heavy emphasis on that. But understand that that's just because that's what we're focusing during that time period. It's not our only goal, okay? It's just not the goal we're focusing on right now. And so once we achieve a level of lean mass, then we can move back toward addressing speed or strength or whatever it might be, whatever the goals might be. And then understanding that like showcasing, especially um, if we're traveling every weekend, you know, they, they'll tell you that, well, it's on the weekend, so it doesn't interfere with training during the week. But what the reality of it is they're, they're coming in either fatigued, fatigued on Monday or they're not coming in at all because they needed to sleep in because they got home late. And then they're probably going to take off Thursday because they're going to pitch on Friday night. And so now we're talking about it. Uh, to uh, a Tuesday, Wednesday training cycle where all we're focusing on is recovery or just building movements again. And we never make progress on our physical goals because we're so focused on this like college and pro side in the future that we're not even giving ourselves a chance to build that quality of an athlete. And so I think it is just having the conversation of like putting things back in perspective, step one, step two, step three, here's our goals. And let's be on the same page as what those goals are. So when a tournament does come up, is it going to interfere with what our goals are? And if it isn't, then fine. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Good luck on your tournament. We'll get you ready. And if it is, then it's, we should be on the same page and saying, Hey, this probably isn't the best idea at this time. Could not agree with you more as far as that side of like setting out the roadmap, right? Mm -hmm. I, I gave this example a few weeks ago on the podcast, but it's, I stole it from Dave Tate. It's like, if you're going on a road trip, right? Before you drive across country, you're going to check the tires. You're going to make sure you got the, the oil changed. You're going to make sure your car is ready to go before we go on the road trip, right? So being able to lay out that journey, I think probably answers 95% of the questions that you're going to get. And like you said, it's going to help build that relationship. But too, like I'm a person, I love to be able to see like, where are we going kind of thing. 
too. And it sells them on your program, sells them on what you're going to be doing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it keeps you accountable too. So are we actually taking steps toward, toward what their goals are? Because at the end of the day, their goals are what matters, not necessarily what, what our plans for them might be if they don't align with those goals, but you're hundred percent right. I haven't actually hadn't actually thought of that car analogy from that perspective of making sure the tires are good, make sure the oil's changed. You've got gas in the tank. Like that's your check marks here. It's like, am I actually accomplishing all those things? <laughs> am I yeah. ready to do this showcase? Am I ready to go to this tournament? Am I ready to, to go uh, talk to this college coach about me coming there? Maybe. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, I stole that straight from Dave Tate and I loved it. I mean, it instantly popped with me where I'm like, oh man, like so many questions to ask on the lifting side and just the mental side too, as well of everything. What about the mental, you know, aspects of these, of the athletes and everything? I mean, you're dealing with guys that are making hundreds of millions of dollars to the high school kid that's going to be pitching in a showcase kind of thing. Where, where does that approach kind of come into things? Um, well, yeah, again, that's a, that's a big box we could open up. Right. Um, I, you know, a lot of times, man, there's a, there's so many ways I could go. I'll just start with this. The good athletes usually have a, an abnormal level of confidence in what they're doing. Um, so I'll say that, and almost to the, to the extent of bordering on cocky to an extent. But, really? but yeah, it, like, especially look at the baseball player. They're, they're hitters. So I, I worked with Bregman for a couple of years, right? And he's, he's an example I like to use because – he legitimately thought nobody could get him out. Like, if you talk to him, like, can this hit pitcher get you out? No. You know, and, and it was – that was his actual belief. And obviously, he's going to bat you 290 to 300. So, the, the pitcher's getting him out more often than not. But you kind of do have to be delusional as a hitter to think that you're going to be successful against some of the stuff that people are throwing up there these days. So, I'll start there. But – it's also just like a, these successful athletes have a dedication to the process. And, a de- and when I say the process, I do think it gets over wet, overused because they say, people say the process as in their process, but I mean the athlete's process. They have an actual plan and they're not just chasing a bunch of random things. So, and, and, there's, a, and there's a conviction in it, right? Like I know that long-term this is going to pay off for me. I know that long-term if I take these steps and I'll be successful, you know, and there's no questioning of if they're on the right track or not, just because maybe they had a bad vertical jump that day or whatever it might be. And some of the, the um, um, less, I, I don't want to say gifted, the less um, performing athletes oftentimes have, don't really have much of a process at all in there. They don't have a foundation. They don't have their, their principles lined up as far as what they're trying to do. So they, they end up, they end up uh, just believing anything someone's someone trying to sell them. So they, those are the people you see that train at 10 or 15 different places over a two year period, instead of just sticking with what they actually believe in and having conviction in it. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot that goes with training back to a more general mindset thing. There's a lot that goes with training that helps the, the mentality of an athlete, right? Overcoming adversity, setting goals, accomplishing goals, and then just having the confidence um, from the work that you put in um, consistently to transfer over to, to the playing field. And I think that's partly on us as coaches to communicate what to expect as far as transfer, um, instead of just letting them build up their own expectations. And, uh, and, um, I think, I mean, a huge benefit can come from training just, just on the mentality side for sure. 
I mean, how awesome has that got to be when, say, you have a kid come in as a freshman, like you said, and they, you know, they let's say they get drafted or they, they graduate uh, from high school and they go get a scholarship. Their parents are super excited, but you can objectively look and see and like the growth over time. But during those four years, you can say, hey, man, look at what you did from four years. You came in here, you could barely do a body weight squat. Now we got you trap bar deadlift and this, this or that. And look at what you've accomplished. How, how for you and your guys' role, because I know you guys have had a, a lot of great success with your athletes, when you see them maybe get that scholarship or maybe they go get married or what, maybe they go get this or that, how awesome for you as a coach does that feel? I, I actually just talked about this on a, on a podcast the other day. Um, this, this literally, that literally is the biggest payoff for a coach, right? Is yeah. to see, yeah, in whatever they're doing. And it, you know, I think sometimes athletes think they've let their coach down if they, if they stop playing a sport. Um, but you know, it is that if they got a good job, they get married, have kids, like that's just as rewarding as the guys that make their debut or for them, their major league debut or get a division one scholarship when everyone thought they were a division three athlete. Um, but it really is the biggest payoff because at the end of the day, like coaches, in the grand scheme of things, there's not going to be a lot of recognition for you long-term. There's not going to be a, a huge financial payoff, as, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, <clears throat> but there, there, isn't, there aren't those things to look forward to. So what really drives coaches is the athletes succeeding in whatever it is that they're doing. And that's like, those are the best moments of my career is looking back and seeing um, an athlete making their major league debut, um, one athlete called me saying he's starting his own business. So he had, he had quit football. He was playing football at Tulane. Like those are the best conversations to have because, you know, they're, they're incredibly thankful for, for everything that you've done in their life. And whether it's in their athletic career or them as a person, getting that kind of a feedback truly is the, the biggest payoff any coach can get. So it's huge. Impact right there. I mean, you, you made such an impact on them that, and honestly changed the trajectory of their life. You know, I was, I was listening to somebody the other day, they were talking about how one of their athletes was the first person to ever get a scholarship in their family and to go on to college. Nobody in his family had ever gone to college before and uh, attributed a lot of that to his work in the weight room, obviously what he did on the field and everything like that. But that probably changes the, the lineage of that family from now on. You know, like that's, that's a special moment as a coach. Think about that. Yeah, and that's something we've talked about a lot too. Is if if you're if the impact as, as a coach, if your impact on an athlete stops at the end of their playing career, then you haven't done almost anything. <laughs> Most of these people are going to be done at 18 years old, right? Most of these right. athletes that we work with, we've done somewhere between 18 and 21, the vast majority, and a small portion will play in, until they're about 23, and an even smaller portion will play until they're about 30. And virtually nobody to uh, a handful will play till they're 40 and play a full professional career. So if you're, if at the end of the day, what the biggest thing is for us as, as coaches is impact and, and having that rewarding feeling of impacting an athlete's life. Like you're not going to have much of it if, if your impact stops in the weight room or stops on the playing field and doesn't, um, you're, you're not impacting athlete in a way that carries over into their life beyond that. Yeah, 100% agree with that, man. Because if you if you think that it's just going to last forever, I mean, you're going to get a rude awakening one day and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, what the heck happened? But if you as a coach can help prepare them for that next side of it, of you're not necessarily telling them like, hey, you're not going to do this or that, but like, hey, 
you were consistent four times every single week. Like, look what happens with consistency. You gained 20 pounds of lean muscle mass and you just got a scholarship and everything like that. So I, I, I love it, man. I think changing lives, that's the biggest portion of being a coach is you're going to help change people's lives. I mean, you're about to be a new father. I mean, and yeah. it's crazy. You're going to be, you know, raising somebody. I look at my son, like you want to help change their life, uh, not only just being as a father, but as a dad. But you know, I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about current baseball stuff, man, because you know, I'm a big, big baseball fan and everything like that. What do you think about sticky stuff, man? What's going on? I recently had a power to me and somebody actually had, um, oh, what's the stuff that everybody's talking Spider attack? Yeah. Because there was some strongman stuff there. And I put it on my hands afterwards on, and man, it was, I was, it was so sticky. It was so sticky. Yeah. So the, that it's kind of been fun to see all this come out in a weird way because it's stuff that we've been talking about in the industry for years now. Yeah. Spider tech's been more recent, more of the last year, year or two, but I mean, it's built like most people don't even know what it's made for. It's made for Atlas stones competitions, right? Like strongman yep. stuff. So you're right. It's impossibly sticky. And I think the what's going on with it right now is that people are finally start like general population, people, average fans, um, reporters are just finally starting to see that it's when we talk sticky stuff, we're not talking sunscreen or rosin or pine tar. And that's always been the question. Like, Oh, do you use pine tar when you pitch? Like none of them use pine tar when they pitch, but they all <laughs> something. Right. So they can look right. you dead and say, no, I've never used that in my life, you know, but, and, and I think the general fan probably thought one or two people on every team was using something when the reality is we're talking like 80 to 90% of all of baseball is you was using something up on their hands at this point. And where it does get tricky now is because I think people um, sit there and be like, oh, they're all cheating. So we should just, you know, crack down on it. They shouldn't be cheating. But the reality is they've changed the ball over this period of time too, because exactly. you need the, you, because they had the sticky stuff, they didn't need the, um, the higher seams. They didn't need a grippier ball. So there wasn't a lot of feedback on that end. Um, but then now you take it away. And now there's nothing to grip. People don't understand like the seams, how flat they are in a major league baseball and how dusty those balls can feel. So when there's nothing to grip now, mid season, we're starting to use more grip strength to try to hold on to a ball. And so our, the, the muscles of our forearms are going to get more and more fatigued. It's going to be harder to recover given a course of an off season. Maybe that's not an issue, but because you have time to build up that tolerance, but exactly. you're throwing hundred miles an hour. And now you're changing not only your arm kinematics, but you're changing the, the amount of grip you're having to use and fatiguing your forearm faster. I mean, we are really asking for some injuries right now. Um, and it's not as simple, like I said earlier, it's not as simple as to say, well, they shouldn't have been using in the first place when it wasn't, it wasn't even like a taboo topic. It was a, a common topic that was just talked about. Like people were talking amongst other teams about what they were using and amongst in, in other clubhouses on what they're using. People in the clubhouses are making the stuff. And it, it wasn't like, a, oh, don't tell anybody, but this is what we're using. It was just, here's, we're all using something. So it wasn't really this dirty secret. It just wasn't in the, in the common conversation amongst fans and reporters. Yeah, it kind of, I mean, you, you knew people were doing stuff, right? Like you said, the sunscreen and the rosin, like you could clearly see it on yeah. a guy's forearm or whatever it was, right? And I used rosin when I was in a, 
when I played football in high school, I was a center. So I would use it on the sidelines and my hand would sometimes get sweaty, but yeah, I don't, some people were saying that because of the way the balls have like some of the balls from last year are still in cycle for this year. So that's messing up everything too, as well. I don't know how, how true that is or what that would be. I don't know if that was the case too, as well. I don't know. I mean, there's a, there's so much that goes into this. Cause like, you know, we talk about the use of sticky stuff and I'll use a guy up in your area, but I mean, just look at this was so obvious. You can look at guys with it on their hat, their back of their hat. Anytime someone's going to their forearm, like or the in the thumb on the glove or the string on their glove, that's what they were doing. It's right out there in the open. And, and umpires knew it was going on. Managers knew it was going on. The reason you didn't call someone out of the other team was because you didn't want your team to get called out because that was seen as kind of a, you know, a low blow. Like, don't you shouldn't be calling us out. Like you've got guys doing it too. But like you look at a game a few years ago, Yadi and Molina goes to block a ball and it sticks to his chest protector. And it was like, oh, <laughs> ha, ha, that's so funny. Classic Yadi. I'm like, hold on now. This dude's got something caked on his chest protector to the point where nothing's going to kick away from him. And no one said a word about it. But that's clearly competitive advantage. And I think that's where the conversation got lost was hitters would say like, well, if, as long as they don't hit me in the head, like, I want them to have a grip on the ball. And, but they didn't, I don't think they fully realized the consequences of some of the advanced stuff like spider tack that they were using was, it, it didn't even really help them feel where the ball is going as much as it does just add the RPMs and make their stuff more nasty. So now you're looking at fastballs that can spin at the same rate of breaking balls and breaking balls that in order to get to break, let's say this is where people need to understand why it made it, it wasn't just the grip, because it, to get more RPMs, but the balls are able to be thrown, the breaking balls are able to be thrown harder too. Because if I'm looking at this kind of break, let's say this is 20 inches of vertical break, okay? Yeah. So if I'm looking at this kind of a break uh, with no stuff on my fingers, um, I might need more spin efficiency straight over the top because I don't have enough RPMs to get that amount of break, okay? But now when I add the RPMs, I don't have to get the efficiency as good. So because I can add RPMs to recreate the same breaking ball, I can go more here on the side and have more of a gyro type spin on my breaking ball. And I will get more RPMs, okay, because of the sticky stuff. So that'll kind of like um, make up for the loss of spin efficiency. And so now I can throw a ball harder because I'm a little more behind it than I am out in front of it. So I can throw a harder breaking ball that moves exactly the same as that straight top spun breaking ball. And so essentially the further out front of you are, the slower the ball is going to be. So the further behind it is, the faster it's going to be. So if you can sacrifice a little bit of the efficiency for a little bit of gyro and be a little bit more behind it, you could throw, well, was an 81 mile an hour fastball or curveball with big break. Now you're throwing an 85 mile an hour fastball or curveball with big break. And I think that's the kind of stuff that gets lost on some of the everyday conversation here. Oh my, I mean, there's some of the stuff that you're seeing. I mean, some of the nastiest pitches. What I don't understand is kind of what you you alluded to earlier was why do this in the middle of the season? Why not wait till maybe the all-star break when or something like that? Or why not just do it in the spring training of next year or something like that? That was kind of my question. Is like yeah. we already know, like and typically we know batting averages are gonna go up in August and July too, as well. So I think they've said they've they've gone up since this new rule has gone into play, but it typically goes up anyways around this time of the year anyways. Yeah. So how much is it really doing? I mean, who knows? I think it's having a big impact. 
I mean, I, I do, but uh, like you said, the, the, um, the, uh, I think it's more making it harder on pitchers to pitch than it is easier on hitters to hit. Probably. Exactly. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. But um, I, because these guys still throw wicked stuff. It's not like they needed it to be good. Like they're still good pitchers. Um, but it is it is weird that it seems like, and I don't have any firsthand knowledge of the inner workings of MLB, but it does seem like MLB has in recent history has waited for a scandal to arise, and then acted in a knee jerk way. Whether it's the 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 video scandal with the Astros, or the um, or this sticky stuff, once a once a controversy kind of comes up, then it's a knee jerk instead of preemptively having a plan and working past it. And like one of the things I'm looking forward to is like, are, are they going to start pol policing slick stuff? Because now you're going to start seeing people, if we can't go this way and get spin, then maybe we'll go this way and kill spin with some sticky stuff or slick stuff. And I, I haven't heard of anything being checked and maybe they're just checking for everything on the gloves and on the hats, but have they made any sort of formal announcement on how they're going to handle if a slick substance is found or is it the same or I, I just don't know. In my opinion, and I think I heard some, I don't know who it was talk about this, just put something on the mound that is universally accepted and just use that. That yeah. will solve all the problems for everybody. Or just add a little bit of tax to the ball and say nobody can use anything. Yeah, that'd be. Just... Yeah. And, Baseball's always been like what you said. They've always been a reactive versus being proactive with things. So, yep. Wait for something to come up, and now it's a controversy because of how how they've implemented this, and there's no real course of appealing a suspension or anything like that. It just seems sloppy. But it's kind of how baseball's been working lately. Well, and for me, it kind of as a fan too. If if I want to see somebody pitch, right? I want to see. I want to see them have a great game. I want to see the hitters hit and everything like that. I don't really care if they're using so, – yeah. this is me as a fan, right? I really don't care. It's yeah. just, like I want to enjoy the baseball game on what it is. And the, they always talk about the pace of play stuff. That's always yeah. a big conversation. Well, now we're having to stop all the time or like that one game where managers are making, play, you know, a second checks. It's like as a yeah. fan, this is – as a fan, like that's just something that I don't – I personally just don't enjoy. It kind of bogs it down for me. Pace of play too. Like I feel like that's the most overrated thing in baseball. Um, <laughs> what what person like they're, they're they're complaining about their TV audiences, but they don't worry about the in stadium audiences. If a game gets fast enough, I don't want to drive downtown to go to a game. You know what I mean? You can have right. a attendance if it's only a two hour game. Like I've got to drive all the way down there, find parking, pay all that stuff for food for only a couple of hours. Like I'd rather it be a three three and a half hour experience um day at the ballpark as opposed to just filling a couple hours of my day especially at those prices so I, I think pace of play is overrated but um yeah this certainly doesn't help they're slowing the game down with all this stuff but I'm kind of with you in that fact of like I'm one of those people that loves to get there for batting practice and then stay till the end of the game so I want to get my money's worth kind of kind of deal but I understand the side of today's youth but they do a terrible job in my opinion I feel like we're ripping a lot on baseball here now all of a sudden but even on social media, stuff like that, it's really tough. It's, it's, I mean, it's really hard to, uh, to get excited about certain things. I don't know. You can't, you can't use the MLB app to watch your hometown team. Like, yeah, it's the stupidest thing ever. Thing. Like the only people that, would, that should ever use the app then are people like myself that have athletes kind of all over, reporters and things like that. 
but it's certainly not made for the fan when it should be. If you're worried about people tuning in and watching and that's what you want to control, then what you need to do is have the, have no blackouts, right? You need to be able to be, I need to be able to be at the grocery store and pull up the Stroh's game here in Houston and watch it. You need to be able to do the same with the Royals or, or whoever's right there around you. And uh, it's, that's, that's where they've lost it is you can say pace of play because of the youth and things like that, but you're doing little to nothing else to help your case and pace of play is probably the last part of it that needs to be addressed. I was so depressed when I pulled up my MLB TV app and I couldn't watch world's game. And then I, I was exactly like you thought I was like, let's say like Otani right now. Is that what everybody's talking about? Let's say I'm an angels fan. And I want to watch Otani, the number yeah. one player everybody's talking about in baseball. I couldn't watch him because mm-hmm. of the, where I'm living at. Like that's the stupidest thing ever. It you're, makes sense. You're killing it, man. I mean, in my opinion, that's like a huge disservice. I mean, I know the NFL, like you'll get certain blackout games in your area, but you'll still find a way to be able to watch it. I mean, you're, I don't know. That to me is a game killer. Like that's once a week. That's an event you plan your week around in the NFL. MLB is a constant flow. Right. So you need something that can provide constant flow. NFL, you don't really need it because you either can listen to a couple of plays on the radio when you're driving in the car or you can just, um, you know, you, you've made an event like to go to your buddy's house to watch the game. Not, you don't need to be at the store watching an NFL game, really. You're not planning on being at the store during, exactly. the, during MLB. It's every day. So you kind of, you can't schedule your whole day around the game. You have to be able to pick it up where you are. So that's a big missed, missed uh, opportunity there. Well, it was like, I can't remember who it was. I think it was um, a couple years ago. Um, Bubba Starling was coming up for the Royals. I was really excited just to be able to see him have his first game with the Royals. I had to go to a like a Buffalo Wild Wings, ask for them to put the TV on for me able to watch the game because I couldn't watch it on my MLB app. That's so ridiculous, man. Sir, that should never happen. <laughs> I agree, man. Well, hey, we'll get you out of here. Um, obviously, very, very thankful to be able to have you on, on the podcast today, man. Get you out of here with the final question. Um, what are you grateful for, man? Uh, I'm grateful for, um, well, first and foremost, I'm grateful for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Um, loving me so much to go on the cross and dying for all of us. Um, and uh, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for all the coaches along the way that have impacted my life personally. Um, they've been a great deal for me. And I'm, you know, I'm grateful for all the athletes and families that have uh, trusted not only me, but everyone around me on the, on the DST team. Um, and you know, it's a great sense of responsibility to have, but it's rewarding at the end of the day. And that's pretty much all the things I'm grateful for. Absolutely, man. Yeah, man. Jesus, why we all do it all, everything, you know, he's the reason for everything. So I a hundred percent agree, man. Um, real quick, social media. Sorry. I meant to plug that people want to reach out to and follow you, but if you're not following Kevin, like, I don't know, there's a problem. Like you just need to follow him. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's at it's at the Kevin Poppy. It's T H E K E V I N P O P P E, and then DSTs is DST underscore Houston. Follow those. Awesome. Yeah, make sure you guys follow them. I love it because yours are putting stuff up of your athletes, like their successes, and you can truly tell like it's a family atmosphere where you guys are at. Like you truly care and truly love that man. So as an outsider, I love to see that. It's awesome to see. Thank you. It means a lot. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, thank you for being on this week. Everybody, make sure you follow him and stay strong.